How are we doing today? Good. Excellent. Excellent. Well, last week we started our series in Hebrews and we're talking about how Jesus is greater. Somebody say, Jesus is greater. That's true. It's absolutely true. We talked about how he's greater than our sin. He's greater than our doubts and fears, and he's greater than our situations. And last week, the goal really was to reorient ourselves around him. I hope that this past week, like you've begun fixing your eyes on him more securely, because in focusing on him, you're going to create the correct lens by which you see everything else. So when you look through a pair of glasses, you're going to see the world tinted by whatever those glasses are colored by. Does that make sense? And so, and so when we look at the world through like a Jesus-tinted lens, we'll begin to see everything else around Jesus, which is really kind of the, the point. So I think it's very crucial that we fix our eyes on him. I think it's crucial that we see him correctly. Because if we don't see him correctly, then we'll operate with our lens not fastened the right way. We'll operate incorrectly. We'll, we'll, we'll seek him in incorrect ways. So it's crucial that we see him how he is correctly. It's crucial that you and I make every effort to grow towards him instead of drifting away. And, and, and again, that's the point of all of Hebrews, is don't drift away. Don't neglect the things of God. Don't, don't stop pursuing him and everything that you have and everything that you are, because where you stop doing those things on purpose or just because of busyness or whatever, you're going to miss out on the blessings of God. You're going to miss out on the relationship you could be having with him. Chapter 3 in Hebrews, verses 12 through 13, are going to tell us this. They're going to give us kind of a, uh, 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 a caution. Let's look at it. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. This is such a great reminder. This is such a great reminder. And what I like about this verse is that it really kind of hits the heart of discipleship. It hits the heart of discipleship, which is that someone would be investing in your life. Someone would be, while it's still called today, exhorting you to go after God in every way. So if you're in a disciple group, hopefully your disciple leader is texting you almost annoyingly. You know what I'm saying? Like it's almost too much. Well, it's not because they're trying to annoy you or they're trying to uh, 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 peek into your life for gossip's sake. They want to know you because through that relationship, they're hopefully going to be able to speak into your life and show you further and further and further how to be more like who? Christ. Christ. And so I, I really hope that you're in a disciple group. I hope that you have a relationship like that here at this church um, because it is so important that we exhort one another today. Today. I love this reminder. So t- today I want to talk about rest. Rest is a topic that I don't think Americans are great at. Um, now, I don't, want to, I don't want to overstate the problem. Um, I don't want to demonize the opposite side of what I'm talking about today in order to like, make my invitation a little more punchy. You know what I'm saying? That, that would be misleading. I don't think work is a bad thing. I think work is good. In fact, I, I see work in the Garden of Eden before sin ever occurs. God told Adam to go name all the animals. Okay, I, there, there's, there's work embedded in what they're doing in the garden. Before sin ever hits, work is not a bad thing. So I'm not really talking about work as opposed to rest so much, but I am talking about something that I found very interesting today, the idea that we can't shut off. So I was reading this statistic this week 
And again, not to overstate the problem, but I found this interesting. Let's look at this. A survey of 1,000 workers by Good Technology, a mobile software firm, found that 68% checked work email before 8 a.m. Seven out of ten of you this morning have already checked your work email. And I see some, I see some looks at spouses right now. I see some, mm-hmm. I see some of that stuff going on because you guys know it's true. Seven out of ten of us, maybe ten out of ten in here based upon y'all's reaction, have already checked your work emails this morning. 50% checked while they were in bed last night. 38% routinely do so at the dinner table. Fully 44% of working adults surveyed by the American Psychological Association reported that they check work email daily while on vacation. About 1 in 10 checked it hourly. So again, I'm not trying to hit you with the statistic to make my point so much more serious this morning. Work is not bad. I'm all for work. Men especially, we need to be working. You need to use your hands, okay? Absolutely. Uh, But I think we have a problem with shutting off. I don't think, and maybe that's because of pressure. Maybe because we don't feel like we can. Maybe our boss is really very demanding or whatever, and we feel like we have to in order to perform or succeed further and further. I I don't know what the pressure might be or, or, or what exists there, but I do know that it's very difficult for us, even at home, for us to shut off. I mean, what's the very first thing that you did this morning when you woke up? Probably your phone woke you up, number one. Probably. It was the alarm that woke you up. And so since you already had it in your hand and were headed to do your morning routine, you probably went and checked Facebook, email, Twitter, whatever you're on. You probably did that first. Maybe you answered some text messages. Probably is what happened this morning. And again, that just points to the idea that it's, it's very difficult, I think, for us culturally as Americans to shut off and to fully, fully rest and invest where we are. Can I get a nod on somebody? I just need, I just need some affirmation up here that y'all know what I'm talking about today. Okay. Amen. Okay, so my hope today is that we fix our eyes back on Jesus, who's not going to magic fairy dust this issue. It's not like, okay, we talk about Jesus this morning, and all of a sudden you're, you're going to have perfect rest. You're going to be able to shut off from work perfectly from now on. It, it doesn't work that way. But what I think that he'll provide for us is answers that will lead us towards rest and peace. He'll provide for us an opportunity to reformat our actions around the truth that we see in him. Is this making sense? Okay, so that's why I want to fix my eyes on him today. Like I did last week, talking about chapter 1, I want to set you up for some success today in chapter 3 about how Moses and the Israelites were disobedient to God. Okay, that, that all of chapter 3, because we're not going to touch it today, but all of chapter 3 was about how the Israelites and Moses were disobedient to God and they missed out on the promised land and the rest that they would find there. You have to understand that these people, the Israelites, were enslaved for 400 years in a land not their own, working for somebody else's gain. Does that make sense? And so, so after these 400 years, they've lost identity. They've lost maybe purpose. They have no safety or security because at any time, even one of their babies can be taken from them. They are people that aren't bound by anything. And so the promised land stands for them not only as a place to go have your own spot, but really as a symbol of rest, really as a symbol of peace and security. And all of chapter 3 is going to quote the Old Testament. It's going to talk about Moses, and it's going to say that the Israelites and Moses were disobedient to God, therefore they missed out on the rest. There's two times where the Israelites come up to the promised land. 
the first time there's 10 spies and plus two, there's 12 spies total that go into the land and they come back and they give a report about the land. The first 10 say, ah, we can't do it. There's really tall people there. Uh, they, they look like they've got a lot of military might. There's, there's established places with large walls. We can't, it's going to be very difficult. Although the land looks really, really good. It looks great, but I don't think we can do it. And then two of the spies say, no, I think we can. We have God on our side. We need to trust him. He promised us that we would have this land. This is our place. We need to go in and take it. And all the people really commit a mutiny against Moses. And they side with the ten who gave a bad report. And so Moses and the Israelites are then given some consequences that they get to handle. They're given some consequences where they now get to go wander in the desert for 40 years. And the generation that missed out or purposely didn't enter into God's rest for them, the promised land, has to die out. And the next generation will have a chance then to enter in again. And the second time it happens, they come up to the promised land, Moses is not allowed to enter because of disobedience. There's a moment while they're wandering and Moses is fed up. You know what I'm saying? I'm turning this car around. That was, that's Moses's attitude. Okay? He's fed up. They've been complaining. They've been asking, are we there yet? The whole time. And he's over it. And God says, okay, speak to this rock and water will come out. You can be able to feed your people. They're in the desert after all, so they need water and food. And, and God's providing all these things. And Moses, in his anger and frustration, which if you know Moses' story, has always been his issue. He's prone to violent anger, which is why he had to flee Egypt, because he killed a man with his bare hands. He's prone to anger. He's prone to anger, and instead of talking to the rock like he was supposed to, he hit it with his staff. And we're like, well, that doesn't feel like that big a deal. I mean, you know, you should have seen the people he was dealing with. I mean, it was such a, it was such a, a hard time for him. You know what I'm saying? The circumstances around what she was dealing with, and I think we're missing the point when we start down that road. The point is not whether or not the disobedience looked bad or not. It was that he was off of God's heart in that moment. Period. And he went back to the person that he was before he knew Christ or God in this moment. Is that making sense? And so he hits the rock and his consequence is that he does also not get to enter the promised land. So that's what all of chapter 3 is about. And then the writer in chapter 4 begins to shift the focus off of Moses and onto someone who can provide greater rest, and that is Jesus. Let's start in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 today. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Now, this is not talking about physical rest. At, at this point, it begins to shift. It's not talking about physical rest like the promised land. It's, it's talking about something bigger. It's talking about spiritual rest. See, the Israelites missed out on the spiritual rest because even though they heard the truth of God, even though they heard that he would provide for them and be with them in all things, they did not mix the hearing with faith. They didn't place their trust in belief in a way that caused them to action. That's what faith is. I can look at any one of these chairs in this room. I can examine it, look at the welds to make sure all the weld pieces are on correctly. I can make sure that all the screws are screwed into the backing of the chair and on the bottom. I can look at the plywood to make sure it's got a good um, a thick texture for when I sit down. I could, look, I could examine a chair. And I could say with probably full confidence, this chair will hold me up. But it's not faith until I sit down. 
And we operate by faith every day. You hit the brakes every day without ever checking the brake lines or the brake uh, uh, lubricant in your lines. You, you, you operate in faith all the time. You expect it to happen. What the Israelites and what Moses missed out on was mixing that understanding, that knowledge with trust and belief, which led to action. That's faith. And so they miss out on the promised land. And what I find so frustrating about this moment is they didn't even, like, they didn't even take one step. You get what I'm saying? Like they didn't, even, they didn't even go one step in because they thought they wouldn't be successful in the first place. They turned and ran the other way. And I think that's true of our Christian lives. If we don't fix our eyes on Jesus correctly, then instead of even attempting with him what he calls us to do, I think we run the other way and act like the people we've always been. It's easier to default back to who we've always been rather than pursue Jesus on into who he wants us to be. Is that making sense to anybody today? So they, they never even try. And because of their disobedience, they missed out on the security and the peace and the freedom that he wanted them to have. God's offering them wholeness, and they didn't accept it. Let's look now in Hebrews 4, 9 through 10. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. There is a rest for the people of God, and it is found in one person, Jesus Christ. And just like the Israelites, we have a choice to make about whether or not we'll enter into God's rest. We have a choice. See, the rest is offered. The rest is given to us. And it's found through a relationship in Jesus Christ. What verse 10 says is that he who has entered rest, entered his rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. The writer is saying something big here. So the person who has placed their faith in Jesus as Lord of their life, they no longer have to work to prove their worth to God. Let me, let me explain kind of what this verse is, is touching on as well. See, the old way was to try and uphold the law perfectly. If, if you know your Bible at all, the Israelites were handed the law. They were given the law, which kind of set them apart as a people distinct for God. It gave them some identity, gave them some purpose moving forward. And in the law, the expectation is that you're supposed to fulfill every piece of it. Every do and don't at all moments everywhere you go. Is that possible? No. No. Y'all can't even drive the speed limit. Much less follow a list of laws that pursue God. And God knows that. So he set up the Old Testament sacrificial system for the Israelites. That was supposed to keep them attached to him through their obedience and doing all these particular sacrificial system laws. Okay? And, and, and it was a lot of work to maintain the system. We could talk all day about it, but we won't for the sake of time. Just trust me that it, to maintain the system, there were sacrifices going on all the time. There was all the time someone having to present themselves to the priest. There was always, always work to be done around being linked up with God. See, Jesus came and lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law on our behalf. So, so then he grants those who have placed their faith in him his very own righteousness. He says, all of the favor that I rightly earned through my perfect life, I offer to you 
if you'll put your faith in me. See, Jesus lived the perfect life, fulfilling every one of the laws perfectly at all moments at every time. And because of his perfect life, when he goes to die on the cross, he can now offer us his righteousness, finishing the sacrificial system forever because his was sufficient. Whereas a lamb being sacrificed, a physical lamb being sacrificed, or a bird, or having a wheat offering, which is an interesting thing, all, all, of, these, all of these sacrificial system uh, Old Testament laws, they weren't sufficient like Christ's sacrifice was. His was once and for all. See, rest here means that we're approved by God. He no longer demands perfection, but my pursuit. Galatians 3, 10 through 11 and 13 will prove this. Let's look at what it says here. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Did you guys catch that? In all things. Cursed is the man who does not follow the law perfectly every single one. In all things. Even the Old Testament proves this in verse 11. But that no one is justified by the law on the side of God is evident. For the just, those who are in right standing with God, the just shall live by faith. Even the Old Testament was talking about God in the correct terms. It's talking about having faith in him, not just fulfilling a bunch of rules to make him like me. See, faith is the key. Verse 13 goes on to say that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. This is good stuff. See, that relationship with Christ is the rest that's being talked about here. I get to relax because the burden of getting God's approval is not on my shoulders, but on Jesus's. And because he offers me his perfect record to expunge my own, I can now live with confident assurance in relationship with him. That's good stuff. And so I think there's two ideas at play here. There's eternal rest when we die. When you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, one of the benefits that you get with the relationship, see, the, the relationship is the most important thing. Not all the benefits you get, but one of the benefits you get in relationship with him is that you get eternal life when you die. That's the first prong, I think, that's happening here. The second prong is that there's a here and now rest that happens as we experience the knowing of Jesus every day. As we experience living for him and being obedient to him, there's a here and now rest that comes from knowing he does not judge me or condemn me. I get to live confidently assured that he loves me and is at peace with me. That's a big deal because I know me. I know who I am. I know how I act. I know the thoughts that are in my head and they're not always godly. Lord, take this person in the left hand going 62 to heaven now. They need to know you right away. I know that's in me. And that's wrong. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's wrong. That's in me. And so I, I'm, I love that I'm at peace with God because of a relationship in Christ. See, rest is a result of peace. Peace is the result of being fixed to truth and fixing our lives on the way, the truth, and the life. That's Jesus. Grants me acceptance and forgiveness. See, Satan wants to keep you distracted. He wants you to miss out on the truth, the way, and the life. He wants you to stop growing towards Jesus because as you pursue him in relationship, you're going to get freer and freer and freer. 
And Satan wants to bind you. He wants to stop you from knowing Jesus fully. Because there, you're chained. You're chained to what he has for you, which is not real life. See, disobedience, disobedience to Christ is the opposite, is the opposite of what we're supposed to be. The beauty is that when I get relationship with Christ, I get to experience truth, finally. I get to experience truth. And once I've experienced truth, the Bible tells me that the truth is going to set me free. I'm free in Christ. I'm free in Christ. So Jesus has set me up to succeed. He's already done all the perfection stuff on my behalf. And now I just get to confidently live for him. And where I fail, and I will, and you will, and that's okay, where you fail, where I fail, I get to humbly approach him with sincerity and repentance. And he meets me with grace and forgiveness and then calls me to go and sin no more. See, we want to make Jesus, we want to make him something he's not. Am I, am I, are you allowed to sin? Yes, you are under grace. Absolutely you are. But if you continually sin without any remorse for your actions at all you sin so that grace may abound all the more it's not possible if you're in a real relationship with jesus you can't sin knowing that you're offending the one who loves you and has forgiven you of those things Is, is is this communicating because here's the thing we're supposed to pursue him it becomes our natural response for the fact that he's given us approval I'm supposed to pursue him. Well, why if I'm already forgiven? Because pursuit reflects a heart that loves him and is thankful for what he's done for me on the cross. Pursuit is the correct response to God. It's the only response. Accepting his grace doesn't contractually obligate me to servitude to him. You guys are contractually obligated to your cell phone company. I'm pretty sure you signed it in blood and with your first children's like, name in promise. That's what it feels like. At least the amount of money I pay them every month, it feels like it should be, at least. You're contractually obligated. A contract looks like this. Looks like this. They offer you a service, and you offer them money. And where either of you are in breach of the contract, you get to leave. You get to leave. You don't have to... You, there's, no, there's no staying power there. You, you can leave. It doesn't matter at all. And, and, and it, they get to leave, and they probably get to sue you as well for all the money you didn't pay. See, that's a contract. The relationship with God is covenantal. It's a covenant. I was just at my uh, cousin's wedding, and the, the part that really gets all the tears, there's two parts that get all the tears. When, when she walks in looking just drop-dead gorgeous. Husbands, you guys know what I'm talking about. When, you, when your wife walks in drop-dead gorgeous, the prettiest she's ever looked, oh, man, she's all dolled up, Wow. And, and there's a moment where everyone goes, ooh, you know? And there's a little, little bit, you get one tear, it's papal. And then there's a second time, there's a second time where everyone oohs and aahs, and it's, it's the correct moments to ooh and aah. Here's the second time, is when the vows are being read. The vows in sickness and in health, for richer or for poor. I'm not going anywhere. I'm binding myself to you on purpose. I'm not going anywhere. I'm bound to you. I'm bound to you. I'm going to show you by the way that I live and act. Whether you're sick or healthy, I'm bound to you. I'm not going anywhere. That's not a contract. It's not when you do the dishes and clean up the living room and discipline the kids, then I'll love you. No, no. 
There's nothing that you need to do to earn the love of your spouse. Now, there are things that you should do to maintain the love in relationship. Is this making sense? So we're covenantally bound to Jesus in the same way. We're in a relationship with him, and because I love him, I'm in. Whatever you want, I'm going to do it. No problem. And if you, I mean, if you pay attention to your relationship at all, probably the moments where it's growing and things are going really well is when you're pursuing your spouse. The same is true of Jesus. When you're pursuing him for real, your relationship is going to continue to grow. So let's look at what Hebrews 4.11 has for us. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. This verse is not advocating now, now that it's said, you don't have to work, you have peace with God. It's not now advocating for you to just do a bunch of things to earn God's favor. That's not what is happening. There must be a deeper reading of this text. What it should, or what it is saying, is that there's a here and now rest that we can enter into if we can be diligent to go after this relationship with God. There's a here and now rest that through my obedience, through my pursuit of obedience in him, I get more of him, which gives me more peace, more security, and more freedom moving forward. And I got to thinking about this this week. We can't expect the rest of God to take effect in our lives if we're not obeying him. You, you can't expect the rest of God to be real in your life. It won't take effect in your life unless you're obeying him. Now, we don't obey because we have to. We're already approved. We're already forgiven. We're already made right in God's eyes. We pursue him because we want to. And the problem with the Israelites, I mean, I, this just started to kind of impact my mind this week. The problem with the Israelites is not even that they disobeyed. Follow me here just for a second. The problem is not even that they disobeyed because disobedience really is pointing to something deeper. Disobedience is pointing to the fact that they never entered into the rest to begin with. They didn't mix that hearing with faith. It didn't become a thing. It didn't become a thing. that They just intellectually knew that God was there. They intellectually believed it. It's real, right? But they didn't put it into practice via faith. And for us, disobedience really is just a reflection of your heart, whether or not you by faith are linked up to Jesus or not. Disobedience is, is the thing, right? or we want to make it the thing. It's really not the thing. The thing is whether or not you're linked up with Jesus by faith. So the writer is saying that those who have started a relationship with Christ, they've entered real rest. And he's cautioning us not to miss out on the rest we experience in that relationship by being disobedient to Christ. So I'm supposed to be diligent in obedience because it's a reflection of my heart. Obedience at its heart is a desire to please the one to whom I owe everything. Not that my obedience earns me anything because I already possess favor I don't deserve. That's grace. That's grace. And it turns our hearts toward him. It turns our obedience towards him. So let's talk about the marks of an obedient disciple. Let me give you a list. Bible reading, scripture memory, prayer, emotional accessibility in disciple groups and with your close people. Tithing, service, and being teachable. These are, what was that, six marks? Seven maybe? Of, of an obedient disciple, one who's pursuing God for real. Now you can do all of these things without your heart behind it. 
and it would be wrong. The point is not, are you doing the list? The point is, do you know Jesus? And the list comes out of the knowing. The list comes out of the pursuit of him because he's not demanded your perfection. He's only demanded your pursuit. So this list to me is what we'll talk about in discipleship all the time. This is what we'll talk about in discipleship all the time because our lives need to begin to more reflect Jesus in everything that we do say and think. And so as that happens, these things will become natural responses to, to that relationship with Jesus. And I want to focus in on a couple of the ones on this list that I don't know get talked about a lot because I think we talk about scripture memorization and scripture reading and prayer and emotional accessibility in groups and with your close people all the time, especially in this context. We talk about those things all the time because they're so easy to do. All they're going to cost you is maybe some time or mental bandwidth. That's all it's going to cost you to pray and to read your Bible and to be emotionally open with people around you. That's all it's going to cost you is a little bit of time. It's not really going to cost you much more than that. Whereas tithing, service, and being teachable cost you quite a bit. Let's talk about it. Being teachable. It costs me my pride. Being teachable is the mark of an obedient disciple because God wants to change your heart and mind to reflect his more and more. You'll not enter into further rest in relationship with Christ if you're constantly trying to show your strength. Displaying my strength rather than allowing someone to talk into my life, someone to teach me about something, is disobedience. It is rebellion for the sake of posturing. It's rebellion for the sake of my mask looks cool. At its heart, it's the idea that I am God and know everything. Being unteachable says I know it all. Who could possibly tell me anything I need to know? You, you're going to tell me? Well, let's look at your life. That becomes the reaction of someone who's unteachable. Because they know everything. Who could possibly speak into the... Who could possibly give them something new? Who possibly could give them anything at all that would move them towards Christ? Because they already are, are nailing it perfectly. If you know everything, nobody can talk to you. See, being teachable at its heart elevates you to God's level. It's the sin of eating the apple in the garden. I'm going to be like God, knowing everything. So some of this is we need to check our hearts to see if we're following God in obedience and allowing others to speak into us. Not only to speak into us, but challenge us to action. So here's the self-assessment question this morning. Am I teachable? And I think how quickly you answer this question says something about your heart. If you just immediately went, oh, I'm very teachable. I'm not sure you are. I'm not sure you are. Maybe you are. I'll give you that. Maybe you are. Maybe you are very teachable. But, but instead of answering so fast this morning, let's spend a moment asking God during our prayer time in just a little bit. Let's ask God, am I really teachable? Am I really teachable? Am I allowing somebody to speak into my life? If you can't answer that question, you're not teachable. Whose life am I speaking into? If you can't answer that question, you're not teachable. So 
So we need to ask these questions of ourselves today. Holy Spirit will reveal to you in honesty because he's honest with you and leads you to truth. Ask him for real. Am I teachable this morning? Because if we can make ourselves teachable, then God has so much more rest and relationship and peace and freedom for us. Okay, let's talk about tithing. Uh, This is a part of your obedience to Christ. It is absolutely commanded. And just because it's commanded doesn't cheapen the reality that's a spiritual habit that if you're lacking in, reflects your heart. So just because it's commanded doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Just because it's commanded doesn't mean that we should have any less of our heart invested in doing it. See, at its heart, tithing is an acknowledgement that God owns all my stuff anyways, and so I'm going to trust him with just a little bit of it. Tithing at its core is about trust. Somebody say trust. For me, tithing was the last stronghold of disobedience. For me, it was the last stronghold. Uh, see, I, I was pursuing him in other marks. I was being emotionally accessible. I was praying. I was, I was reading my Bible. I, I, I was trying to serve the church and, and other people well. But in tithing, I refused. And, and, and one day, God just, like, he showed me. He showed me, you have got to change. Because here's what I would do. I, I had just a list of excuses. Uh, you know, God, I tithe with my time. You know what I'm saying? I just, I, put, I invest so much time in people. <laughs> Why would I need to give my money to? That's silly. Uh, you know, I, at the time I was at Las Cruces, I was a pastor there. I, I would say to myself, well, I'm a pastor. It'd be silly to pay myself. <laughs> You know, it'd be silly. I'm already, I'm already serving so many people. They've been bl- so blessed by me. Why would I need to tithe? That would be, that would be craziness. Tithing, tithing is not for people like me. And, here, and then here's, after those would get kind of answered by God, because he's like, seriously. Uh, my next thing to do would be like, okay, well, God, I, I'll tithe. I'm going to take my checkbook with me to church this week. Because I want it to be an act of worship. I want to sign, I want to physically sign the check and walk it up to the front, you know, into the box. I want to put it in the envelope. I want to make sure that it's an act of worship for me. And then I would remember to forget my checkbook on Sunday morning. Oops. God, I'll get you next week. I promised I would. I'll get you next week. And then by next week, I've spent all my money. And I've got nothing left for God. That's what I would do. And God showed me through a sermon one day that, like, I'm not trusting him. Not really. I say I am, but I'm not really trusting him. And so I had to change. And that, that change came a little more slowly than I'd like to admit. But, but it did happen. And I'll tell you this, now I give regularly. And that doesn't earn me a Christian badge, uh, a favor that makes me better than you. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's not about that at all. I'm telling you that it significantly changed my relationship with God. I mean, significantly. I grew spiritual because I was finally really trusting God. I don't tithe because I can afford it. It's kind of the point. I tithe because it causes me to take all the rest of my money and center it around God's money. And I pursue Christ because he's at the center of my life and I want everything else in my life to come around God at the center so my money better ought to look the same. It better ought to look the same. And I can't say it any other way. You are disobeying God if you're not regularly giving. You are in disobedience to God if you are not regularly giving. And more grievous than, than disobedience 
is a heart that does not trust him. What's worse than not giving money to God? God doesn't need your money. It's not about the money. More grievous than not giving money is not having a heart that really trusts God with everything. So I have a self-assessment question for you. Am I tithing regularly? And if not, why not? If I am tithing regularly, what's your heart like when you give? Are you, are you dog cussing when you give? Or are you a cheerful giver? Because the Bible, because Jesus knew us. He knew that if he said tithe, many of us would start tithing and be like, fine, I'll give. Because I know I'm supposed to. But what, what he wants is not just your action. What he wants is your heart. He wants your pursuit because he pursues you. And, and so he called us to be a cheerful giver because he, he knows how we are. And so if you are giving, praise God, amen. But are you giving cheerfully? And there are moments when I see that money leave my account. Because I'm on recurring giving now. I, I, it's like, because, again, the checkbook thing, I'll bring my checkbook and not actually bring it. You know what I'm talking about? So I'm on recurring giving, so it's kind of a level of accountability for me um, that I give just automatically. And, but, but I see it leave my account. And there, there are weeks where I go, man, I really could have used that. Yeah, I'm just being honest. I'm just showing you my cards. And I really could have used that. There's improvements to the house that needed done. There, there, are things that I, there are things in my life that I need. Uh, my truck tires, the sidewall of the tires are starting to flake off. You know, you know what I'm talking about? There, there are things that I need. And I could have used that money. And that's what goes through my brain, and then I have to catch myself. Because that's not cheerful giving. And in that moment, God is just sweetly teaching me, trust me, trust me, trust me. I have more for you. I have rest for you. I have peace and security and freedom for you if you'll trust me. And in those moments where I feel like garbage, God loves me all the same. And it's a, and it's a cool moment, actually. It becomes a really great moment where God gets to reorient me back to himself. So am I giving regularly? If not, why not? And what's your attitude when you give? The last thing, service. Serving others and serving in this body is about obedience, not convenience. It's not convenient to serve anybody everywhere, ever. It's not convenient. It goes out of your, you go out of your way to do something nice for somebody. That's never convenient. But it's not about convenience. It's about obedience. Service, service at its root is about thankfulness expressed in action. If I'm not grateful, then I'll not serve. If I'm not grateful for my family, I won't serve them. If I'm not grateful for my job, I won't serve people at my job. If I'm not grateful for my church, I won't serve there. If I'm not grateful, I will not serve. See, not serving others or this body is the same as saying everything is about me all the time everywhere. Everything is about me all the time everywhere. Why would I serve anybody? It's about me. What do you mean? I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm already here. They're graced by me being here. <laughs> they need to serve me. But see, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to. Service is the acknowledgement that life is ultimately about more than just me. And it reflects a heart that says, I want to be like Jesus. 
It's a purposeful humbling. We talked about this last week. Jesus made himself a little lower than the angels on purpose. He limited his very own power. He limited the scope of his ability to serve and to save us. Service is that, for us, is that exact same example. We're supposed to live like that, supposed to be like that. So service at home and at work and at church are necessary aspects of obedience. It is a spiritual habit that we've got to grow in because it directly points to our hearts. So you need to serve your family at home. Let's start there. Get on the ground and play with your kids. Serve your wife. Serve your husband. Not because they always deserve it, because they don't. Can we just be real? Your wife and your husband and your kids don't always deserve it, and neither do you. Because sometimes they're the worst, and sometimes you're the worst. And because that's true of both of us, it's okay. I'm going to love you regardless. I'm covenantly bound to you. I'm not going anywhere. So I'm going to serve you. I'm going to serve. So serve at home. Love your kids. Love your wife or husband. Serve at work. Serve here in this body because you're going to find more rest there. You're going to find, it's counterintuitive, but you're going to find rest, more of that confident assurance of his love and his presence. So some of you need to find a place of service in this church. There are numerous places. There's the nursery, there's the children's area, not just on Sunday mornings, but also on Sunday evenings and on Wednesday nights. Some of you guys don't come to Wednesday night church, which is fine, I'm not, it's not a judgment thing, I, but, but just know that there are other times that like church is happening and that we need help in those times because we want to grow our kids up to love Jesus better and we can't do that if we're always strapped for volunteers. The corner always needs volunteers. Listen, the corner healed me this morning. I just want y'all to know that. I was feeling a little sick this morning, a little puny. I had a Laura Long muffin and, uh, and a, a little bit of coffee, and I was healed. I was healed. I just want you guys to know that the corner will heal you, and if you work there, it will double heal you. So you can volunteer. You can volunteer alongside the teens who, who run that so well. They do. They do a great job. The welcome desk needs people who are trying to help facilitate a welcoming atmosphere. We need smiling faces, people who love other people and want to serve them. We, we ha- always have special events where these chairs need to leave the room and then come back and then leave the room and then come back and then the tables need to come back in for the meal and then they need to leave the room and they need to come back and people need to cook and then there's always set up and tear down. There's so many things that are happening during these events. People, we need your help in these because it, it creates moments where we get to teach other pastors about discipleship or, okay, we could go on and on about, about that. And I could tell you about the other areas of service, but you guys get the point. When I invest myself the natural reaction is service. When I'm really pursuing other people and God, service is just the natural overflow. Of course it's what's happening because I love these people. I'm grateful for them. So here's another self-assessing question. Am I serving? And if you are serving, what is your attitude in service? God didn't save you so that you would white-knuckle all this life and say, fine, I'll just do all the stuff you just said, fine. It's not what it's about. See, uh, as we close, I want to draw you back to the main point. I've just given you a list of stuff to do, but the point is not that you do these to earn God's approval. The point is that you have his approval already, so seek him all the more. Pursue him, because he's not demanded your perfection. He's already granted you it. Pursue him. At Cornerstone, we want to continually draw you back to the truth of this grace. 
God loves you so much that he gives you his goodness when you don't deserve it. And then because of that grace, action. Because of grace, action. Jesus wants your pursuit. He wants your heart. Because he knows that when you give it, you'll find rest. He knows that when you give it, you'll find rest. Let's diligently pursue him this week. We'll find freedom and more peace there. It's my prayer over the next several seconds as we, or minutes as we pray together that you'll really, like seriously, ask God what's next. This is the kind of, kind of thing that, that once you hear, you, you have to do something with it. Either you ignored it the whole time, you slept through it, or you have to do something with it now. So it's my prayer that you and Holy Spirit would do some work for the next several minutes and that you would pray, take these moments, use them to your advantage, ask God, what's next in my life? Do I need to start tithing? Do I need to start serving this body? Do I need to start thinking about service differently at home? Am I really teachable, God? And he'll, he'll honestly give you honest answers. He'll honestly give you answers because he's going to guide you to truth. And where truth is, is freedom. So let's enter that rest this week. Let's pray for a few moments. Let's pray for a few moments. Father, we thank you. Your mercy and your love and your goodness, they are overwhelming. They're overwhelming because I know I don't deserve them. I, 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 I know I don't, I wasn't so good that I deserved to have your freedom and your peace extended to me. Thank you that you would even consider me someone valuable and important to offer this grace, this love, this relationship to. And so this week, I'm, I'm going to do my best to pursue you. Not because I have to, but because I want to. And so I'm praying for those in this room, God, today, that, that know you, that have placed their faith in you, Father, that they would pursue you with honest, with honest love and with honest connection and with a desire to know you more. I pray that we'd begin to reformat our brains a little bit this week. It's not about perfection, it's about pursuit. I pray that, that our pursuit would be true, would be honest, would be real, and that you would help us in it. Father, show us what's next. Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we don't know what to do next, but, but you'll, you'll guide us. You'll, you'll give us a conversation this week. You'll put somebody in our path who will show us in ways that we'll understand what we should do next. We're praying for that. I'm praying for that for these people. That you'll show us in ways that we'll comprehend that you are speaking to us and that you are good to us still. And be with us this week, Lord. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior today, you have an opportunity right now to enter into true rest. Jesus wants a relationship with you. He'll give you his approval. If you'll just kind of repeat the words after me or, or make the prayer your own, just follow along. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you so much for this love that gives me approval even when I don't deserve it. I know I've not done everything perfectly in my life. I know that I've not measured up. I know that I've hurt people. I know that I've wounded myself at times. I know that I've sinned against you and others. But I know that you died 
and forgave me of those things and you're offering me relationship. So God, I'm asking you to be Lord of my life today. I'm asking you to come into my heart and, and lead me and guide me and give me all the things I need to be like you. I'm asking you to be my savior. I'm putting my faith, my trust, and my belief in you today. Help me to live more like you. Help me to look more like you and love others well. In Jesus' name, amen.